Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Good evening. Growing up, I was um, a very sensitive kid. <clears throat> Probably no surprise there. Um, and um, yeah, I felt things deeply. And I was um, like my father, also, who had that same sensitivity. Probably I inherit it from him. Um, I'd cry at movies. Yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wasn't a crier when things went bad, but I'd cry when my heart was touched. And I'd cry at movies, and I was just, as I was thinking about this, um, giving this talk, I, <clears throat> memory came to me that my, my sister still my sister's four years older than I am, four and a half years older. And, and so she was there for the whole show and reminds me of things that I'd forgotten. And uh, uh, With love, with a lot of love, I'm happy to say. But um, I saw this movie and I looked up the date. So I was seven years old. And uh, it was this movie, Shane. Um, probably not many people... Anybody here know the movie Shane? Oh my God, we've got some oldies here. Whoa. <laughs> and <clears throat> the end of that movie, Shane, the protagonist, the hero, is riding off into the sunset, and this boy, Brandon DeWilda, um, who idolizes him. Mm, I'm just feeling it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I am a softie. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing how it's just right in there, you know? And the, the boy is saying, come back, Shane, Shane, come back. I see some nods in there. I cried for probably days, you know? <laughs> oh yeah, Shane, I remember that one. And there were a bunch of them, the Eddie Dushin story, I was, I was a puddle. And, um, and I felt things, uh, another thought, uh, memory that occurred to me. We, we lived in Queens, um, in an apartment in, in Queens, Jackson Heights, Elmhurst, Queens. And New York City apartments have cockroaches from time to time. You know, it wasn't like we were overrun by cockroaches, you know, but we had cockroaches and there was the, the can of Raid. And when my mother would pull out, oh, there's a cockroach, my sister or somebody would say, and my mother would pull out the Raid and shh. And I would do what they called, oh, Jamie's bug dance. I'd get on the floor and I'd, I'd be going back and forth. I was dying with the roach. You know? 
and they'd be laughing and and you know but i was feeling it so now you know a little bit about about me right i i felt things deeply and uh, even and older you know as my wife will will tell you one of my favorite things that i that i did when uh, our son adam who's now 35 was very young was um reading to him reading kids books to him chronicles of narnia you know in in the mornings um this is earlier before he he had to go off to school um and I'd read Chronicles of Narnia or this uh, another series the Prydain Chronicles and there are some very moving parts in those books and I'd start to well up as I was reading and Adam my son would say there you go again dad you know <laughs> uh and he kind of was playful but it just would touch me so and i i have a feeling there's a number of people here who know what i'm talking about and then growing up in the 60s um the 60s were a unique era and um i feel blessed to be grow- to grown up in the 60s but it was an intense time because there was um civil rights struggle and vietnam which i felt very deeply and had some intense um conversations with my dad at the time um and there was the beatles we were listening to beatles earlier tonight uh all you need is love and the whole 60s counterculture where you were part of the club by just saying by just saying going like this oh peace that you care about peace so it was a lot to navigate but it shaped me and i knew what what touched me deeply was all you need is love um but the the koan was how to hold it all the sorrow the pain the the lying the divisiveness we have a little bit of that these days yeah and and the joy as well there i was coming out with everybody oh i'm not alone in this and that shaped me and it shaped my my teaching as well this koan uh, you you start teaching and you want to you know you you want people not to suffer right well when i started teaching on my very earliest retreats well, i i was asked to teach uh by someone and i and by a friend to teach a course and i went to my two main teachers Joseph Goldstein and Ramdas to say what do you what do you think you know and they both said yeah that sounds like a good idea and Ramdas said 
why don't you teach a weekend so you give them a real taste of practice? And I said, really? He said, yeah, go ahead, you can do it. Well, on my, one of my first weekends, um, somebody was on the weekend who I cared about a whole lot wanting to have a good experience, who is Sharda Rogel. In those days, she was Henrietta. And she was a, a, a good friend and I just, this is her first taste of practice. And she was having a miserable time. And she was saying, I, this is crazy. This isn't for me. I just, I'm just really suffering here. And my first impulse was, how do I, how do I make it right for her? You know? And then as I sat with it a little, I realized, oh, first noble truth they're suffering. Maybe I, it's not up to me to take away her suffering. And I told her, oh, go for a walk and just get some space and just relax. And she ended up teaching for the next, you know, f almost 50 years, uh, 40, 40 plus years, 43 years, 44 years. And that was a koan in being there with somebody suffering and not and wanting to take it away, but, but knowing it's not up to me to take away. And now it's part of my job description, as it is for all of us, to be there, not just cheering people on and seeing them, them blossom and grow, as you're all doing so beautifully here, but to be with your suffering, to be present for it, to witness it, to create a, a space, a container where you, you're not alone in it, but that you are going through it yourself so you can learn. <clears throat> and it's, a, it's an extraordinary position to be in. <clears throat> there is, you know, you have a, 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 a list of practice discussions, practice meetings, and somebody comes in and they are in a heaven realm. Wow. And you get a little contact high and you just kind of, you know, feeling mudita. And the next person comes in and they're in the hell realm. And it's, oh, okay. It's not, oh, let's, let's have more heaven realms here. That's not what this is about. <clears throat> And I do lots of weddings. I love doing weddings, especially when I know the people. Um, and I do funerals too, and memorial services. And I'm there for when people are going through the most you know, unspeakable uh, trauma and abuse. And I try to be there. And of course, these days, there's, uh, there's the climate issue, which is how do you hold all of this? You know, I, I, as you know, I've been teaching Awakening Joy and a number, of, a number of years ago when I first really took in the immensity of the, of the situation and I've gone through, I think I might've mentioned here, a few 
times where I've had to digest the enormity of the situation and my heart breaking. Um, and a, a friend who's the, now the, he's the co-founder of One Earth Sangha that I'm, I'm very much a part of, we were in the council house, he was visiting. He was the World Wildlife Fund climate program manager at the time, somebody who was doing amazing respect, uh, amazing work with, uh, with climate, who I respected so much, and a practitioner. And I said, Lou, my heart is breaking here, and I don't know what I can do to make a difference. I've just been sharing the Dharma and teaching awakening joy. And he looked at me and he said, James, joy might be the most important thing we need to remember. And I said, oh, okay, I can do that. So this is a koan for me, holding all of the sorrows and the joy, and it's a koan for all of us here, as you've been working with it the last weeks. <clears throat> this is from Khalil Gibran who says, <clears throat> your sorrow, sorry, your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And the self-same well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. So they, they go together. It's not one or the other. This is the human realm of the six realms. This is the perfect realm to awaken even better than the, the Deva realms and certainly better than the lower uh, hell realms and hungry ghost realm and even animal realm because this is the realm where we experience both sorrow and joy, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And this is how we learn to open up to it all. <clears throat> Even better than the deva realms where people are, the, the, the devas are just lolling about saying, oh, this is so wonderful, and aren't motivated to practice because their hearts haven't been broken up there. <clears throat> These days, when people ask, how are you? For quite some time, my response, if I really get into it, if I really am honest, I say, well, <clears throat> when I think about my own life, I'm so incredibly blessed and so grateful and so privileged and so grateful. When I think about the world, my heart breaks for the sorrow and the sadness and the suffering, as well as seeing the beauty in it. And then when I go wider out, I think of the Dalai Lama who says this line, if you truly see the way things are, world systems come and go. They come and go. And if we do our part, that's all we can do. But to keep that bigger, bigger perspective where you're not completely devastated by the sorrow and you're not completely uh, living in um, denial or dreamland uh, at, at the joys. 
So I wanted to talk tonight about opening to all of all of it uh, with the uh, emphasis on the subject of equanimity, which somehow helps me hold it all and reconcile both the sorrow and the joy. <clears throat> when I say reconcile, I mean um, um, allow for it all. So equanimity, upeka, the last building up the, up the road, uh, is a very, holds a very unique place in all the factors, qualities of mind. It's on many lists, as has been mentioned. Uh, it's the last of the Brahma Viharas. It's the, of the four Brahma Viharas. Uh, it's in the on the list in the seven factors of enlightenment, the ten paramis, the four jhanas, etc. But it has one unique thing in each of those lists. It's always the last in the list. The last of the four Brahma Viharas, the last of the factors of enlightenment, the last of the ten paramitas culminating in equanimity, upeka. The, in the progress of insight, the different stages of awakening, it is the last just before full awakening, enlightenment. Because in some ways it's the, the culmination, the ripening of mature practice where you can be with it all. Just like the Buddha being with it all on the night of his enlightenment whether it was attacks from Mara's army or seductive um, uh, images of celestial nymphs or doubt, there he was being with it all. And this is what we're called to do. And this is what we are learning to do, whether we know it or not, in practice. <clears throat> the near enemy, what looks like equanimity or upeka, I think it's been mentioned here, is indifference, is apathy, where there's not being touched or ruffled, but not feeling connected. Oh, whatever. And the far enemy, of course, is um, attachment or aversion. <clears throat> and equanimity as you probably know or can, can hear from the word, it's, it's a balance of mind with all the ups and downs that come our way, all the changing circumstances, and it's a, a stability in, in the face of fluctuation of, of worldly fortune. So this is what we're cultivating here, finding balance in our practice. And balance is a key word in, you probably have seen it in the various lists. There's the five faculties we started out with, balance between, the, um, between faith and wisdom and energy and concentration. And there's in the seven factors of enlightenment, there's those 
um, arousing factors and there's those uh, stilling, calming factors. Balance is the key. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and here's one way I think in terms of um, the stilling factors and the factors of enlightenment. The calm, concentration, and equanimity. Calm I think of as a kind of Settled stillness. Everything has come to uh, an ease and a um, tranquility. Concentration is, I think of, as a kind of focused stillness or unified stillness where the hindrances don't arise and the mind is so collected um, that there is a stillness that can Um, be experienced from that. And equanimity, I think of as a spacious stillness that can open up and be here for everything. The highs, the lows. And the way equanimity works we'll be getting to it in a, shortly in the Brahma Viharas, is that it works with the other Brahma Viharas and keeps them from going too far into, um, uh, into the near enemy. So with loving kindness, instead of going into attachment when there's equanimity, we still can hold that warm feeling of well-wishing without the grasping. When there's compassion, we feel things deeply, but we don't let our heart be broken. And with joy, um, we can feel the delight and the happiness without... um, without spinning out into intoxication or exuberance. Uh, And I'll just spend a moment on the compassion and equanimity. Uh, And we'll be talking about compassion uh, uh, as the retreat goes on. Uh, There might might be a couple of talks on compassion. Uh, But it's so important now with so much suffering in the world that it's, it's good to see to understand how equanimity holds compassion, um, there's the the figure of Kuan Yin in the back of the room. What a beautiful statue that is. And there she is ready to leap out to respond to the cries of the world. And yet she's in her relaxed posture, not being overwhelmed, but right here, centered and holding all of that suffering from a balanced place. So there it is, right in that figure, how compassion and equanimity work together. Equanimity helps us respond to what are called the eight worldly conditions or eight vicissitudes of life. 
four pairs. Maybe you're, you, you've heard of them. Have they been mentioned here? I think so. No. The eight worldly conditions. Loss, gain, pleasure, pain, fame, shame or disrepute, and praise and blame. This is what most human beings are caught in one way or another, avoiding one of those pairs and reaching out to try to um, access or experience the alter, the, the other. So I'd like to just talk a little bit about this. And as I do, just m- making it rel- relevant for your own practice, we can explore a bit. Loss and gain. Have you noticed when something good happens, what the mind does? Maybe not your mind these days after two and a half weeks of sitting. Maybe so. Um, But there is this tendency to grasp onto that pleasant Vedana and want to get more of it. It's just human. It's the second noble truth. It's what keeps us on the wheel. The interesting thing is there's no end to it until you see the the predicament that you're in. We it would have been a so much of a different setup if it was just, oh, got what I want. That's all. That's all I need. But the way it's set up is when a desire is fulfilled, it just increases the hankering for more. You know, when uh, John D. Rockefeller was the richest person on the planet, he was asked, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money will be enough? And his response was, just a little more. (laughs) (laughs) That pretty much says it all. And when there's loss, which is part of life, how to work with it, how to experience it, how to hold it wisely. Equanimity isn't just saying, oh, okay, it's okay, this will pass. We have to feel our losses, grieve our losses fully. Otherwise, it's not complete. And we have rituals to help us with that. And and others to help us with that, but not to get stuck in that loss. And I came across, I can find it here, yeah, a really beautiful, um, um, wise teaching from uh, a man named Francis Weller. He's a psychologist whose work is about loss and bereavement and grief. Um, 
and he says, where there is sorrow, wrote Oscar Wilde, there is holy ground. The sacred ground of grief enables us to walk in this world with its attendant harsh realities of loss and death. We can discover how sorrow shakes us and breaks us open to the depths of soul that we could not imagine. Grief offers a wild alchemy that transmutes suffering into fertile ground. We are made real and tangible by the experience of sorrow, adding substance and weight to our world. We're stripped of excess and revealed as human in our times of grief. In a very real way, grief ripens us, pulls us up from the depths of our souls, what is most authentic in our beings. In truth, without some familiarity with sorrow, we do not mature as men and women. It is the broken heart, the heart that knows sorrow, that is also capable of genuine love. Beginning in 1997, I began to offer grief rituals as a way for communities to attend the large and small losses that touch each of our lives. What has become clear is how difficult it is for us to attend to our grief in the absence of community. Carried privately, sorrow lingers in the soul, slowly pulling us below the surface of life and into the terrain of death. Grief has always been communal, always been shared, and consequently has traditionally been regarded as a sacred process. Too often in these modern times, our grief becomes private, carrying an invisible mantle of shame, forcing our sorrow underground, hidden from the eyes that would offer healing. We must restore the conversation we need to have concerning the place of grief in our lives. Each of us must undertake an apprenticeship with loss. So how to really honor and feel our losses fully and integrate them and become deeper human beings. And equanimity somehow helps us hold both ends of that continuum, gain and loss. And here it is. And I can be here for it all. And this takes practice, and I'll offer some thoughts about cultivating that. And I'll just go through these um, vicissitudes. So pleasure and pain. Have you noticed when you've got a really great meditation going? Wow. I worked hard for this, and it's finally happening. Praise the Lord or the Dharma. It was Tawari who said, uh, quoted, nothing like a, a great early morning meditation to ruin your whole day. You know, it was perfect. You know, on my very first retreat, 
This is in 1974. I had this amazing meditation that I'd never had before where it didn't matter if the bell never rang. There it was. I was breathing in. The universe was breathing out. I was breathing out. The universe was breathing in. It was, it was so fantastic. Except the law of impermanence um, took over. And over the course of the next couple of uh, next day or so, I had everything but that. And I'd sit down and say, come on. I know you're right around the corner, baby. I'm ready. <laughs> Sleepiness, restlessness, frustration, confusion, whatever. And I went into Joseph. This is my very first retreat, thank goodness. And I said, I had it a couple of days ago, and I lost it. How do I get it back? And then he told me a story, which I am eternally grateful for. And he said, let me tell you a little bit about my own practice. He said, at some point when I was practicing in Bodh Gaya, I was, it was really happening. I was cruising and every time I sat, my body was filled with light and my mind was crystal clear. And this went on for quite some time, weeks, many weeks. And then I had to go back to the States. He had to take care of, visit his family and take care of some business, knowing he was going to come back to, uh, to Bogaya to practice. And he didn't practice as, you know, diligently. And he knew he was going to go back to practice. He goes back to Bodhgaya and he says, I sat down saying, okay, bring it on. And he said, my mind was like mud and my body was like twisted steel. That's how he described it. And then he said, I spent nearly two years trying to recapture that experience. Even though my teachers told me, just be with things as they are, there was that and then he looked at me and he said, these were his words, I was the dummy. I did it for you. You don't have to be the dummy. <laughs> Thank you, Joseph. What a great teaching to get on that first retreat. And since then, that has been a real... Such a gift, although you can still get seduced. I know. But seeing it's not about getting any particular state. It's about being with it all. I'm sure you've heard that many times and you've even said it in your own practice discussions. But it's got to be more and more lived experience. Pleasure and pain. And pain. How do we open up to pain? How do we open up to the dukkha that is part of life as a practice? 
How can we find a balance with it all? When it's the first noble truth. I want to share with you uh, a story from a a friend of mine um, who passed away um, earlier this year uh, in October. Uh, A guy maybe some of you know, his name is uh, Terry Patton. Just a wonderful, brilliant, dazzling mind and brilliant, heartfelt um, being. And he was diagnosed on his 70th birthday, which was April 1st, April Fool's Day, his 70th birthday this year, he was diagnosed with an incurable cancer. And he spent the last months of his life giving, he's a wonderful teacher, uh, and he gave teachings on his own mortality and on the mortality of the planet, if that's where we're heading. He's very committed to climate and all. And he would give these, he gave a series of four teachings that were recorded to all of his students. And I saw a friend of ours made an excerpt of this last teaching, a nine minute excerpt, a week before he died. It was a Q&A and it was from his hospital bed. He didn't die in the hospital, but he was in the hospital bed. And he didn't know he had a week to, to live. He was so crystal clear, like luminously clear. And, um, and one of the questions was, well, how, how are you coming to terms with this? How are, you, how are you finding peace? You seem so okay with it. And he said, and he, he said no, there's, there's tears sometimes of unbearable grief in here. Don't let me pretend, you know, don't, don't be fooled. There, there's grief. But for the most part, you know, I've gone through that. And now... Why, his words were, why would I waste time in resistance to reality? Reality wins every time. Why waste my time resisting reality? It ennobles us to open up to the truth of how things are. And he said it, he wasn't just spouting a good teaching line. You could, there was a transmission through it that I'm feeling right now. Why waste time resisting reality? Reality wins. So if there's something you can do, as, the, as uh, Shanti Deva says, uh, when things aren't going your way, if there's something you can do about it, why worry? And if there's nothing you can do about it, why worry? And that takes practice to see, but it makes so much sense to not resist reality. This is what's happening. 
How can I open to it and, and use it to wake up? <clears throat> so pleasure, pain, uh, loss, gain, fame, shame. I'll just spend a, a, a few moments on, on that. Let me see where I am here. Yeah, fame and shame. Wow, you know, I, I, you ever see all these people who want to be rich and famous, you know? Well, Britney Spears, you know, Marilyn Monroe. You can just go on and on and on. It's heavy-duty karma to be rich and famous. It's very few people that can walk that line and, be, and do it gracefully. And fame and shame, in just a moment, we see how, how humbling it is to be embarrassed. But praise and blame, I'll just mention that a little bit more. Praise and blame is something that we all deal with. You know, somebody says, oh, um, how wonderful you are. And it feels good. And you might say, oh, I'm so glad. And there might be a part that says, hmm, that's nice. Yeah? And that's just being human. But when we get caught in that praise and start to feel inflated, you know, people in, 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 in this role you know, you, the people are touched by the Dharma. So I've I've learned when see, when somebody says, "Oh, I, I'm I'm so I'm so grateful. I'm receiving it for the Dharma. I'm so glad." I don't want to deflect it and say, "Oh no 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 no," but I don't want to. You know, I realize it's 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 just the Dharma moving through. Blame. How painful it is. We get negative feedback. And we start beating ourselves up when we're just being human. The Dalai Lama has a, a, a beautiful um, teaching when there's, when you, there's negativity coming towards you or there's, there's uh, energy that might uh, activate some fear. He says, your sincere motivation is your greatest protection. So just before I go on, um, making, making, making it relevant for you, just get in touch with your own experience when there's praise and blame. How in your wisest moments might you respond in a way that's not getting lost And see if there can be a kind of spaciousness that allows for it all. How to not take it personally and beat yourself up or inflate yourself. And in your wisest moments, how do you work with that?
Okay, so now I want to talk about equanimity and some supports for equanimity that we can that we are doing in our practice and that you can consciously invite, just like you can consciously cultivate equanimity. So the, our task and the gift of equanimity is learning how to let go of the control that we never had in the first place. And to accept things just as they are. And out of that openness and spaciousness, we can respond wisely to the truth of what's happening, an appropriate response as it's sometimes spoken of. So here are some supports for equanimity. First, equanimity takes courage. This is not a namby-pamby kind of a, an attitude. It takes courage to face the difficult. And it's so natural for fear to arise because we're, we're in new territory. If you've already been in that territory, oh, I know that one, you're not quite as afraid. But if it's like you're stretching yourself, then fear will naturalize, it arise. As soon as you get out of your comfort zone, by definition, it's going to be uncomfortable. And so you can see fear other than when there's danger there, but when it's just the mind saying, whoa, I don't know if I'm up for this new mind state or exploration. You want to honor that and know your window of tolerance and not go above what you can handle, but you don't want to shy away from it out of a sense of safety and protection and not grow. You're in the game to grow, aren't you? Well, how can you grow un unless you're willing to open up to new vistas and territories? So fear is a kind of membrane between the familiar and the unfamiliar, between the known and the unknown. And Jack Cornfield has a, a good way of putting it. He says, fear is really saying, about to grow. <laughs> and if you can see it as an ally, oh, and make friends with fear. Remember I played that beautiful piece by um, Vienna Tang um, and Tanya Schaefer, The Human Experience. See the fear, feel the fear. It's just another texture here. You're outside of it now, peering in. You're part of the human experience. So seeing fear as an ally that allows you to open up to the difficult and being really aware of what your limits are, titrating your, your dukkha and your, uh, your capacities. So that's one, realizing you are developing courage here. 
You probably know that already, but you're, you're deepening your capacity and feeling, uh, getting in touch with an inner strength that you wouldn't know you had otherwise. So that's one. Another support or understanding about equanimity is seeing things as they are. This is what we're doing, to see things just as they are. This is what's happening in every moment of mindfulness. You know, Vipassana means to see things clearly, to see things as they are. Every moment that you're here and you're not grasping or avoiding or identifying with experience, this is a moment of equanimity, actually. You're cultivating it right in your moments of mindfulness. And you see, it is just lawful karma unfolding. And you're starting to see, I'm not controlling this show. Have you seen that? I hope you've seen that. You're not controlling the show. I can be here for the show though. What an amazing show. And to realize that anything can happen at any time. That's what we're called on to understand and accept. Anything can happen at any time. That's Joseph's great line. And it has kept me um, on my toes for a long time, or not on my toes, kept me into um, openness to the moment. Anything can happen anytime, so why not be here and see things as they really are? Things can change in a moment. If it's pleasant, oh, let's not miss it. If it's difficult, oh, let's see how I can grow from it. So that is, that's one thing, seeing things they, as they are. Another is understanding anicca, understanding the impermanent nature of reality. That's the one reflection the Buddha said, if you're going to have one continuous reflection, keep tuning into anicca, impermanence. And that's why seeing things as they are is such a doorway to wakefulness because you see it's completely futile to hold on to changing experience. For a few moments, let's just play around with this, okay? Close your eyes. And right now, you've been doing this for the last few weeks, just see this moment however it is, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, doesn't really matter, and just tune into how each moment is changing.
and just settle into that change. How futile it would be to try to hold on to changing experience. To just relax and open to this moment just as it is. Ah, the relief. Okay, and you can open your eyes now. That might be a, a good reflection if you're kind of getting bored with practice. Mm. Breathing in, breathing out. We just had one a moment ago. Do I really have to pay attention to this one? You know. Oh, yeah. Turn up the curiosity or the investigation and look through the lens of impermanence. Oh, wow, it's all changing in every moment. And that opens up to equality, to the understanding of equanimity. No holding on to changing experience. Another... mm, Reflection that we've been talking about, which is really uh, at the core of equanimity, is just seeing everything is happening by itself. It's all just causes and conditions and karma unfolding. I shouldn't say all because not everything is attributable to karma. Sometimes people hear karma and it's like, oh, well, why did that happen to me? Or why did that happen to them? Or whatever. Not everything is attributable to karma. There's, karma is one of five different laws. I'll just mention that briefly, including accidents and disasters and biology. And, um, and then there are things like cultural and systemic messages, systemic racism and, and other kinds of inequities that, that skew the experience. But in our own immediate life, causes and conditions, have you seen how it's all habits and patterns? Your mind, all of these habits that you've cultivated for a long time, when you see it that way, it takes out the blame. Why am I like that? Why do I keep on going like that? Oh, it just causes and conditions. And the same way when you see it with others. Oh, it just causes and conditions. And the heart can open and open its clenched fist into compassionate understanding. And then we can see that all we need to do is show up with the intention to be present in a kind, compassionate way, and life keeps on revealing itself because that is setting in motion a particularly profound, liberating cause and condition for awakening. And from that, you can start to relax that control and trust in the unfolding. When we first started this retreat, we took refuge in the Dharma. What does that mean to take refuge in the Dharma? 
for me, it means I open to whatever life is giving to me as a gift, a vehicle for my awakening. I take refuge in the Dharma. This is what life is offering to me. And in that, you can trust in the unfolding, not trust that everything's going to work out, like I said in that first talk about uh, on, on faith, but trust that your awareness, the awareness will meet the moment. And the more you are able to open to that with a sense of trust and surrender, you realize that life is here to support you if you let it. And I, I don't think I mentioned here about swimming, learning to swim. I didn't mention that here, did I? I'll just end with this. Um, remember when you first learned to swim, if you know how to swim? Probably most of you do. And somebody put you in a pool and they said, oh, just relax, you know, just, and you're going up and down. You're saying, relax, I'm, I'm going down here, you know. And then after a while, you kind of get treading water and you see, oh, much less effort. Oh, I can, I can just stay here for quite a while. Very cool. And then as you, I'm sure you've experienced that amazing, magical moment when you stop all effort and you simply lie back and you realize the water was supporting you all along. All you needed to do was stop flailing about. Going from flailing to floating. And that's what we're learning more and more to do as we allow the moment to be just as it is and create a spaciousness that simply is letting ourselves be in harmony with life, not fighting it, trusting, surrendering to the truth of reality. If there's something we can do about it, great. If not, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change what I can and the wisdom to know the difference. <clears throat> and then you can hear the wisdom of the Dharma speaking to you instead of needing to figure it out. It's all here when you quiet down enough. As Ramdas said, the next message you hear will be the next message you hear. And when we can simply just relax and listen, right in there is the truth for us to discover, is the Buddha right within. There is an equanimity practice, which we'll get to in a more formal way in a few, uh, in the next couple of days. But I just offer this to you as, a, as something to keep in mind, letting go of 
the control, responding wisely, remembering it's all causes and conditions and opening to the flow of reality. So let's sit for a moment. Just let this moment be as it is and relax into it. Thank you very much. So we'll have a walking period and come back for a uh, sitting and some chanting and I'll, I'll offer a little, um, give a little offering to uh, tuck you in when you're ready for bed. Mm -hmm. okay. Enjoy your walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.